This episode of the Quien Do It Is podcast is sponsored by McDonald's. Para mí, McDonald's es más que un lugar de comida sabrosa. Es un lugar donde la gente se conoce. Imagínate, tú sales un fin de semana sudado, cansado, después de bailando tanto el merengue, la salsa, el reggaetón, un poco de perreo, ya tú sabes. Uno quiere comer. ¿Y para dónde va después de tanto baile? Para mí, yo voy para McDonald's por varias razones. Primero, siempre está abierto. Segundo, la comida siempre es lo que necesito en ese momento. Y tercero, me tratan como familia cuando yo entro. Yo voy tanto a, a McDonald's después de una noche de baile que a mí me saben de nombre. O sea, yo me siento como yo estoy entrando a una casa de un primo. Yo sé que hay mucha gente que tiene ese sentido cuando entra a su McDonald's favorito, a su McDonald's del barrio, a donde uno vive. El crew de McDonald's te hace sentir que es tu McDonald's. McDonald's, me encanta. Yeah, so initially the email was strictly internal. That was a Friday at noon I sent that out. And then I clocked out. My manager uh, called me and told me to take the rest of the day off, even though I'd been clocked out. <laughs> Didn't really say anything. They're just like, obviously you're upset. And I was like, yeah, no, yeah. Like, um, <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, okay, yeah, let's talk about it next week. Then I started my day like usual. I was working on some project wrapping a few things up, looking at print proofs and whatnot. Then uh, I got, you know, a, the Zoom pop up and it's like, oh, okay. So this is what it's going to be. And I knew immediately, I was like, okay, I, this is not like, you know, my manager is being like, oh, we're having a discussion. I was like, this is HR. I know this feeling already. And then they let me go. Uh, they told me they were that I was being terminated for uh, for poor judgment, disrupting the day of 275 people. Uh, and then uh, that's fine. I, I think like I, was, I said, my only regret to them, to the HR people was like that I didn't have a larger email list to go off of, you know, to send it throughout the entire company because there's like 6,000 people or something that were for this company. Um, and I was just like, all right. And then immediately after that, I was like, okay, they're going to take away my computer. They're going to send a courier or something like that to come pick it up. I should follow up on this email thread. And, uh, you know, I did a follow up email being like, Hey, uh, I got fired for this email. So I just wanted to let you know where they stand on, you know, a queer brown person sticking up for abortion rights. Mi gente, dímelo, dímelo, dímelo. What's up? Welcome to another episode of the Quien Dueres podcast brought to you by Plural. You already know it's your boy Pavel bringing you another special episode with another very special guest. As a reminder on this podcast, our mission is to redefine professionalism. So every week we have a new guest join us for a very candid conversation on the experience that they have had between professionalism and authenticity. Speaking of guests, the clip you heard in the intro is with this week's guest, Michael Lopez. Michael has always been working in creative field, in the arts, comics, cartoons, and last job was in the music industry. At Michael's previous job, Michael experienced something that I think many of us go through. How many macro level events have we been through in the past few years alone? And often we're expected to go into work and leave our emotions at the door. I think that phrase though of leaving our emotions at the door isn't even feasible. I mean, we're human. We take our emotions with us everywhere. Sure, we can control them, but the idea that we can just turn them off is comical. Think about the murder of George Floyd. Think about people's rights being taken away. These macro level events that we often don't even have a say in are bound to affect our mood and our mood is bound to affect our work. So the idea that not only are we supposed to check our emotions, but 
just carry along throughout the workday as if nothing happened? We're supposed to just work through turmoil? Is that even realistic? With the recent news of Roe v. Wade being overturned, Michael found himself at a crossroads, woke up one morning, and thought, well, I have to send this report as I do every other Friday morning, but I don't feel like sending it today. Today, I feel like standing up for what I believe in and making a statement. As you heard in the intro, Michael went through with that email and you'll hear in this episode, Michael met some pushback from the company and eventually was fired for that email. This is actually the first time that Michael has actually been interviewed and discussed this situation in detail. With that said, let's get into the conversation so that you can get to know Michael a bit more. All right, let's get started where we always get started with the buzzword that is authenticity means something different to everybody for you. Like what comes to mind when you hear that word? I guess like authenticity is just like not having to hide yourself, you know, like being able to kind of present yourself with ease as needed in any situation, hopefully. Like, I don't know. It's it's not something that I've been able to do very well until a bit recently. Like my last job was the first time that I was out as like non-binary. So that was like a new experience for me. But then it's also like the there's the oddity of like being the only Mexican in the room sometimes that uh, is like hard to get past for some people for me to, you know, just be myself, I guess. Yeah. Oh, that's deep. I mean, you're talking about like so many layers of identity that you know, we have to just deal with on a daily basis. Talk to me about when you were growing up, do you feel like you had to hide yourself? And if so, like in what ways? In a lot of ways. Let's see. So I grew up in uh, near Del Mar in San Diego. So it was a very pretty conservative and very white area. They actually thought my dad was the gardener when he would do his own lawn and stuff like that. Yeah, he's a he's a very dark skinned man and uh, like Mexican Native American kind of skin tones. So, you know, there's that aspect. Like, I think I heard my first like racial slurs when I was in kindergarten. So those like, that's weird. Um, and you know, I just like, there was maybe one other, um, Mexican kid in the, you know, in the school that I was aware of. It was, it was definitely very white. Um, <laughs> and then on the other hand too, it's just like, I definitely kind of gravitated to more feminine things often early on mm -hmm. as a kid. And I had to like, my parents would like recenter me you know, try to be like, no, you're, you can't like change your name to Kimberly because you like the pink power ranger. Um, you know, like, <laughs> so, so, you know, it's just, those, those two aspects were kind of ever present. I feel like just the push and pull of just trying to like, okay, let's, uh, try not to draw too much attention to myself, at least for now. Like that was my thought process as a kid usually. Yeah. In in those moments when your family was experiencing certain things, like how did you see them handle it? Because I think that often gives us a signal on like how we should handle certain situations as well, right? My dad was very much about assimilation. So he was like, he would mm. always try to gloss over like, well, these things aren't too much of a big deal. Like, you know, it's like whenever he would experience kind of, you know, racial discrimination, he would just kind of gloss over it and be just like, well, you know, they're just assholes. So I don't need to, you know, deal with them. And then my mom was just very apprehensive. She was Italian and Spanish, so much uh, whiter uh, vibe. And yeah, so like she, you know, she would just get kind of like nervous uh, when she would see like bad stuff happen to my dad or like any of the kids. Yeah, that's fascinating because my mom is the same way. Like I tell my mom certain experiences that I have in corporate and I'm like, my mom's retired at this point. So if I'm experiencing this now in 2022, I'm like, mom, you've you've 
definitely had these experiences happen and she's very like she's she's always saying like no that never happened to me and if it did she kind of just laughs it off she's like oh no they're they're just being funny i almost feel like she doesn't even want to admit that some of those things even happened to her like she's also the person that like (laughs) rarely ever shows emotion and i think through comedy is her way of of avoiding those situations so maybe it's just like i don't know it's interesting maybe like a generational thing yeah i mean i definitely lean on comedy a lot myself but like i'm also just like it's much more fun to like call the thing out when you see it because i don't know maybe i like chaos and maybe that's why i'm like never holding an office job for far too long (laughs) i don't know like it's it's very hard to get my dad to admit experiencing any kind of racism like most explicit stuff he would say was when he was in the army and he you know met people from the south you know white white dudes from the south were particularly aggressive with him and his uh you know blacks uh is it co-soldiers what is it you know (laughs) what's the word for that (laughs) uh yeah so like that was the only kind of like admittance of that stuff Otherwise, he, he's been fairly conservative, at least until recently. Certainly. Tell me a little bit about what your father did for work, because I think that's an interesting story, too. He grew up in El Centro, which is like near like Arizona is a farming community. And he had uh, 10 siblings. His dad managed a farm and they kind of like all the kids would work in the fields before school and then they would go to school. And my dad also told me about being a translator for the Mexican kids in his class for the white teacher. And I was just like, oh, wow, I can't even imagine any of that. And then after school, they would go and work until nightfall and in the fields. And then they'd start and do it all over again. And, you know, his his dad was like a, a farm manager. So he managed a bunch of other farm hands. And, it, you know, it wasn't all just the kids. But, you know, the kids, they would, you know, move to different places for different uh picking seasons and stuff like that. Um, at least until he was, uh, I think around 14 or 15, they moved to Santa Ana, California, which, you know, Orange County. So they were picking oranges when they got there and for the most part. And then, um, you know, I think after 16, he was just like, well, I'm just going to focus on on school and, and sports and stuff like that. And then, um, yeah, like, and then the Vietnam War started happening. And to avoid getting drafted, he... Um, he signed up for the National Guard and uh, he was like, oh, you know, maybe I can avoid combat, you know, via this, which apparently wasn't true. He like went through basic training with a bunch of people who didn't make it and stuff like that. Also, like when they listed his occupation on his intake form, instead of like farmhand, they put telephone man. And he's like, that saved my life. And he's like, I think that saved my life because they they sent me to South Korea to work on phone systems. And that's how he got started at Pac Bell was like he got out of the army after Pac, uh, after that and started working, you know, for different telephone companies and eventually became like a VP of installation for like Southern California. And he would be flying around to different, you know, places to get their, their stuff set up. He was, he started out as a technician at, at Pac Bell and eventually was just like teaching people after he got the knowledge. He was a quick learner. Um, and he's apparently very good at math, which I'm not like, I guess I get that from my mom. He told me, uh, <laughs> So like I found like his journey very inspiring in the sense that he like, you know, he came from a very not very privileged background. And I think I I think I got more of a sense of it when he showed me that movie La Bamba with Richie Valens. And it's like that's kind of a similar journey. I mean, it ends with rock and roll and whatever. But like, you know, it's like that's that whole family's working in the fields, you know, 
uh, during the picking season. And uh, I was just like, yeah, I didn't have to do any of that. I just sat around and played video games and watched movies. And it's like, my dad's like, kind of like, I did that so you could do this, I guess, you know? <laughs> yeah. Th yeah. There's this quote that someone else on the podcast said, who um, whose family was also historically working in the fields as farmers and I think the dad told his daughter something along the lines of like, I worked with my hands so that you can now work with your mind. Yeah. Something like that. Like I did all the sacrifice so that you necessarily don't have to. Yeah. So, and that's why he wanted me to go to college because he didn't go to college. And um, mm -hmm. when the recession happened in 2008, he was very close to like retiring with a pension. And then he got laid off and couldn't find another job despite his like, you know, executive experience, like, because he was like, oh, they want someone with a, a college diploma. You know, so he did like consulting or something like that, but he could never get like a, a full-time job again after that. Right. Hence the expectations that he probably then had for you on not only you should go to college, but what you should study. And then when you go into work, like maybe you should stay at somewhere for like 20 plus years. Cause that's what I did. And look yeah. what I got. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's very interesting journey and I don't know. It's just, uh, it's I find it fascinating and I would love to learn more about my heritage. Like he kind of like lost contact for the most part with um, any family in Mexico. So we don't know any about anything about our like indigenous background or anything. I'd love to learn more about that at some point. And like also because his, he was so successful with what he did, he was alienated from a large part of his family as well, too. Like they felt like he didn't maybe contribute enough back to them, possibly. I'm not sure exactly why. That's just what. My mom says kind of uh, she interprets it that way, at least. That's deep. It's kind of like the more successful you are, the further you move away from from where you came from. Yeah, I'm not like, yeah, I'm not sure what he makes of it, really. I don't think we've really talked about why there's that distance that much. But then it's also like I have I have some distance with my family as well, just because of the uh, like being queer was a, a point of contention. They told me I wasn't, you know, like, <laughs> just like, oh, that's just a phase you're going through kind of a thing. But, uh, you know, so there's that distance created by that, but it's like for a different reason. I'm sure your, your confidence in yourself and who you are as you get older as well becomes very different from like when you first started having those conversations and that first contention started. Well, yeah, I like think after a while, I kind of gave up trying to talk with them about any of that mm -hmm. stuff. Like they didn't, they don't have it. Like I never came out to them as non-binary or anything. I came out to them as bisexual when I was 15 and they kind of disregarded that. And I was like, okay, so that's what the, you know, back and forth, like this is going to be, you know, even though my mom's like, oh, I'm very liberal or whatever. It's just like, it's a concept that I can't get across for, um, you know, my family. So I was just like, uh, I'll just be me for a while on my own, my own community. And, you know, um, you know, if they want to talk to me about that, I'm, I'm open to it. But, you know, we don't we don't talk about it very that much. At an early age, you mentioned sort of gravitating towards more non-binary things or, quote unquote, feminine things. Like, yeah. what are some of those things that you gravitated towards that you started to get pushback on? I wasn't allowed to grow my hair longer for a long time. So, like, I, that was a thing that I had really wanted to do. And especially, like... In the 90s, I feel like that was very prevalent, uh, like for like surfer movies, skater movies, kind yeah. of stuff like that. All the media I was watching, like everybody had long hair and I didn't see like there was an issue or anything like being gendered about it. But my parents did. And uh, so that that was kind of weird. And then other than that, it was just like they would tell me which kind of toys. Oh, you can't get these. 
you know, you can get this one, you know, that you've picked out also, but you can't get this one, you know, like if it was like a doll or something like that, or if it was something pink, which I did like pink a lot for a long time when I was a kid. So yeah. And so like, that was, that was just kind of the, they weren't super aggressive about it. They were just like trying to be like, here, no, stay in this lane, you know? And it's interesting, right? Because you see representation on like media and TV and you're like, yeah, like I want to emulate that, which is what everybody does even from kids to adults and you're starting to receive some of this pushback i mean i got i got similar things as well i mean i was i was like really into hip-hop for example yeah. so i wanted to get my ears pierced i wanted to like wear do-rag outside and things like that my grandfather was like absolutely not but in many ways it started expanding beyond my house when i would start going to school or when i started working i would get similar pushback so it was like oh it's not just my family or my grandfather that believe this around like what someone is supposed to act or, or or be like when you started working was it just another voice saying the same thing to you i've been very lucky my first job was at a record store and then i worked at hot topic for a long time well, not a long time but relatively long time and then after that i've worked in kind of like media um you know book publishing and music industry stuff so film and so like that's been for the most part embraced, but I was very into like punk rock and like emo stuff. And especially like towards the mid 2000s when it started to get into the like sceney kind of stuff, where it was like very tight clothes. Like I was like, yeah, I'm into that. And so like, I would definitely get like cat called in the street or something like that. And like, and you know, harassed like walking to these jobs. But uh, you know, usually within the jobs, there was people who looked you know, even more extreme than I did with like multiple face piercings or like, you know, uh, neck tattoos and stuff like that. And so like, I've been very fortunate to be in a, like a position where I've never worked a job where there was any kind of, you know, um, what's it called, uh, where you needed to wear a suit. I don't know. I've just always kind of embraced uh, that part of myself when I feel comfortable too. But at the same time, in certain jobs, I know I'm like, you know, it, when I sense what the environment is, I will pull back. Maybe it's not safe for me to do that right now, you know? to stick my neck out a little bit. And so I've, I've pulled back in certain positions. Yeah, no, that is interesting, too, because I was looking at your LinkedIn and it seems to be like some of your early experiences, you were always involved in, in very like creative fields. I mean, mm -hmm. even in college, you went into study, study art and design from my understanding as well. Yeah. So I think when most people think of quote unquote creatives, they think of looks, appearances, people that are, to your point, not necessarily wearing suits, a bit more relaxed and how would I describe it? Just like comfortable in, in who they are. So mm -hmm. that makes sense that you kind of like surrounded by people that um, had similar interests or looked like you, et cetera. Like that was the only way I could convince my dad to help me pay for college uh, was that I could like, oh, I could make money doing design. I've, I've been doing this before school. Like I did shirt designs and stuff and flyers for bands and stuff. So that was the only way, because I originally wanted to go for acting and uh, he didn't think that was okay. He told me he cut me off for that, like and not, you know, not help pay for it. That's another fascinating point. It's something that we hear often as far as just like making decisions based on family expectations. Like yeah. from an early age, our, our family, our parents, et cetera, they have an expectation on what we should be or who we should be. Um, eventually as well. Like I was really fortunate where, and I, and I think sometimes like those expectations in some ways help provide guidance for us sure. as far as like, oh, well, like maybe I should try whatever field they think. For me, like I had the opposite where my mom was so, she was involved obviously, but she was very off hands where 
she's like, I don't care what you do as long as you love it. Where I felt like I didn't, I didn't know what the hell to go into. Yeah. So I was, in this, I was more so like trying to figure that out. How did, how did you from an early age, just like know that design or or something in the creative field was was something that you would go into eventually? I think it was just how much I consumed stuff like i would i was just like i would devour comic books and you know i we had hbo so i was just like watching hbo like all day like watching tv and movies uh you know like my parents both worked and i was mostly watching tv a lot of the days you know like to fill my time and playing video games uh, i didn't really start getting into like music until a bit later like my parents always played like the beatles and the beach boys and stuff like that in the car um, and I didn't really start finding anything of my own until I think like around eight or nine and Green Day started playing on MTV. And then I started, the thing that got me into design is like uh, record jackets. And my parents had some old vinyl and like, I could like look at it as like, oh, these are big too. I thought this was a calendar or something, you know? When I started getting into um, high school, my freshman year, there was kids who were like seniors who were in like hardcore bands that were like playing like big shows and like, you know, doing their own design work, rec making their own records. And then in addition to that, like working for like, like legitimate merch companies doing like t-shirt designs for like Red Hot Chili Peppers and the Ramones and stuff like that. Like they got, like they had like a career right before high school ended. And I was just like, oh, okay, I could probably do that too. And what they're making is looks so neat. And I want to be involved in that, you know? Yeah. What did some of those jackets look like? Because I, I know the merch stands at like the concerts. I've always loved the T-shirts, like yeah. especially the ones. I, I think they're almost like making a comeback too. It's kind of like a, a a cool graphic in the front and on the back. It has like all the tour dates. That's always just like yeah. a classic merch. But the jackets don't come to mind. Like what did those look like? Before getting into that topic, let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. COVID-19 moves fast, and now you can too. If you feel symptoms, even if they're mild, you should test fast. Test positive and at high risk for severe COVID-19? Then act fast with authorized oral treatments that can be taken at home and must be taken within five days from when symptoms begin. COVID-19 moves fast, and now you can too by asking your healthcare provider if an oral treatment is right for you. Learn about a treatment option at TreatCV19.com. This message is sponsored by Pfizer. This episode of the Ginduetas podcast is also sponsored by Chispa, the number one dating app for Latinos. Chispa is the largest community for Latinx singles with over 6 million downloads. So to all my fellow Latinas, Latinos looking for love or to meet new people, you have to listen to this. This is the perfect app for you to find your novio, your novia, or new friends this summer. If you want to connect with someone like you, someone who loves nuestra cultura y el perreo, you need to check this app. Meeting new people is always a little hard, especially if you want them to be familia or abuelita approved. So if this all sounds good, go on Chispa and find Bay. It's simple and free. Just download the app whenever you're ready. You know, uno nunca sabe. Something amazing could come out of it. So that next time your tias start asking, y el novio? Or when they set you up on a blind date con el vecino, now you can tell them, I'm good, tia. You know, the the CD covers and record jackets and tape covers, just like anything that the packaging is involved in. Like, so, you know, at least look like punk rock stuff. There was a lot of DIY vibe to it. So sometimes um, you get like, you know, screen printed handmade stuff or somebody making like something, um, you know, very bespoke with like letterpress do it themselves kind of a thing. But then also like in the mass produced end, you could have like uh, just different cool, like 
uh, printer effects, like, you know, this like shiny silver or shiny gold or whatever, and then like spot gloss kind of stuff. But like, you know, it's just like, uh, uh, there's a plethora of different kinds of styles that people would use from, you know, intense illustration to collage. And it's just like, oh, this is a medium where you can pretty much do almost anything as long as the, you know, the band approves it. It doesn't even need to say the band's name if you don't want it to, you know, like the record label might like that, but you know, like even the band doesn't need to have it on there. Like that Pink Floyd jacket, right? That's just like, it's like a triangle, right? Or like, you know, and yeah. it's, it's got that, you know, rainbow. There's no band name on that or anything. That just, that just is. And uh, so like, I would find examples of that and just be like, this is really cool. And uh, it's an interesting art form to me because it's also like, this can go out into the world in, a, in an infinite extent, uh, depending on how popular it is. Um, and can kind of live forever in that way. It's got to be dope just the idea of working with artists as well. Because, I mean, for me, artists represent these people that express themselves so freely. But not only that, there's this idea of the community that they're able to build around this common theme or message or even this idea of, like, the community just being inspired and feeling empowered by the music that the artists make themselves. Like, I understand why people want to work in the music industry or yeah. work with artists themselves. Like, would that, was that also kind of just like an inspirational thing for you? Like, eventually I want to do that? Yeah, no, I just wanted to be involved in any way I could. And I was like, this is the way I can contribute to that. And so, you know, I was just like, this is my in. You know, I have a degree in it and like I could, uh, like I haven't proven myself as like a very sociable person to like go out and be like an A&R rep or whatever, you know, else that you could do in the music industry. And I'm just like, this is what I can do and I can, you know, make that work. I love that. Well, well talk to me about when you started working at your first corporate job. My first corporate job was for a comic book publisher called Boom Studios in Los Angeles here. I didn't see anyone that looked like me, though there was like more queer representation. There were two black folks and like there was one Mexican intern like that came in occasionally, you know, they work the like they have all the interns work for free and at that time. This is 2012. So it was it was a little weird and it was like this big building on Wilshire is near the La Brea Tar Pits. And it looked really cool. I never like brought my uh, family or anything to it, but like, you know, it, I could just be like, oh yeah, I work on Wilshire at this big building. And they thought that was impressive to an extent. <laughs> it's a little awkward, the expectations of people in creative fields in the sense that it paid very poorly at the time. I think it was like $25,000 for everyone started at, you know, and it's, I think it's a justification that I've seen throughout any kind of entertainment industry that I've worked in is, well, everyone wants to be here, so we can pay you whatever we want and you just have to deal with that. And, uh, you know, if you want to do any better, you're gonna have to prove yourself a lot, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the shiny lights of what working in entertainment or, or some sort of creative field is. That's interesting. And it kind of is just like in their minds is enough compensation versus paying them. Um, in, in advertising is very similar with agencies because agencies um, essentially control the budgets for like all these major brands. So like the Facebooks of the world, the, you know, the Meta, the Snap, the Pinterest, the Google, all of them sell or try to sell like they'll sell their sales teams will go into these agencies and like take take their take them out to like Beyonce and Jay-Z concerts and Kanye and all these things, these fancy restaurants, just to be able to convince them. So essentially, they the company pays them less 
because they sell them on this idea that they'll be entertained for the entire year by these people that are trying to sell them. It's yeah. like facade. I'm just like, yeah, I'd, I'd rather be paid. You know, at least with comic books, they'll be like, oh, you can go to the conventions for free. You got to work at yeah. the booth, but you can go for free and we'll give you a hotel. You can have Monday off the next day or whatever. But it's like you worked like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, sometimes Thursday for like the convention. And it's just like, oh, OK, back to work on Tuesday. And then like you're not getting paid any extra because they're like your salary. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then in the music industry, they're like, oh, you can get free records and go to shows for free. So like, you know, you know, there's there's those those perks. The salaries have never been too good. So I've always usually had to supplement with uh, freelance graphic design through, you know, various whatever I could pick up kind of a thing. I'd love to get into your LinkedIn post that went viral because it's so dope on various levels. But it brings up this idea of, you know, many of us go to work on a daily basis, whether it be online, in person, and there are various like macro level events that happen. And I think pre-COVID, many of us were expected to just leave your feelings at the door and just do your work. And I think COVID opened up this opportunity for people to even start talking about their emotions and feelings. Like it, it was one of the first times for me where my manager started asking me how I was feeling like during yeah. my one-on-ones, it was very strange. I was like, what do you mean? How am I, what? Don't you want to talk about business? Like we mm -hmm. had for every single one-on-one -on -one the past three years, it was this shift. But at the same time, I think there's a cap on what we're expected to say. So one, one of the recent things that happened in the news was Roe v. Wade. Yeah. And that had an impact on many people, including yourself. Tell me about how that impacted you first. I was pissed. I felt more there was there was more that the government could do, but then also that, you know, all these large companies were complicit as well by donating to and I'd always known about like the donations that my company has made to certain conservative politicians just because I was like, oh, it's a huge company. It's hard to get around that stuff. Certainly. Like I was working out in the morning before I clocked in and I was just like, I saw the news like ping up on my thing and I was just like stewing about it all day. And I was like, no one's going to get any fucking work to, done today. And like, you know, it's just like, it was our, like Fridays and like at Universal, like most of the music industry has this thing called Summer Fridays. And it's like half day Fridays. And at Universal, they made it just like well-being Fridays. So like every Friday you could like clock off at like one, you get paid for the rest of the day. Even with this small amount of time, like no one's working, nothing's getting done today. Like, why should we bother? You know, I was like, well, maybe I should take this time to make a, make a statement with the little platform that I have, you know, which was, these were reports that I did every Monday and occasionally on Wednesdays, but then also every Friday. There would be a new one coming out on Monday and it wouldn't have been a big deal, at least for me. <laughs> it's just, you know, six months of, you know, upcoming releases to an internal group. That was about 275 people that worked at Universal. And so I made that statement that I did in that email. And I was like, I will probably get some blowback from this. I was already having some issues with them, like trying to work from home because of my spouse's autoimmune condition. So there was just like, there's layers to that too. But like my main thing was also just like, you know, they're profiting off of uh Women's History Month, Black History Month, Hispanic Cultural Month, stuff like that. Also, that month was Pride. That seemed symbolic to me in the timing of when that decision was released. And I wanted to like draw attention to that as well, is that this is going to affect all of the communities that you know you try to highlight. It's going to affect Black folks. It's going to affect uh, Brown folks. It's going to affect everyone that you're trying to celebrate. And via like what is essentially a marketing kind of ploy, you know, 
they have the employee resource groups, you know, kind of, but they don't really do much in terms of like affecting change within the company. It's just like, oh, we're going to have a party for this, this group and celebrate, you know, celebrate our heritage. I was just angry about the hypocrisy. You know, maybe we can start a dialogue. Maybe this will be disruptive for the day, but maybe we can start a dialogue with management to maybe try it and, you know, keep that from happening. Cause I'd seen that happen, you know, with people at Disney when that recently, the don't say gay stuff happened in Florida. I was just like, I could see that as an example of like, they're like, oh, they're trying at least. Maybe they're in Disney not doing a great job with like their execution of this, but they're trying to be an ally to their employees. And I wanted that for my company and uh, it didn't get it, <laughs> which is like, you know, I was like 50, 50, this is my work, you know, 50, like I have a, I have a, I have a chance of being fired. And I, I knew that already because they'd been giving me like hard deadlines to come in for all that stuff, you know, uh, the work from home stuff too. So Ariana, who was at Disney and started that bill, I was actually on the podcast and oh, awesome. Uh, yeah. It, and it's interesting too, because she said that, I mean, I DM'd her just like you and she said like so many people were reaching out to her as far yeah. as like publications and, and news outlets, podcasts, et cetera. And she was like, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it, but, and I'm grateful for it, but she was like, I wanted to share it on your podcast because of like the mission and you know, what you talk about and how closely aligned it is. I was like, wow, so grateful yeah. for that. But what was in that message? So you mentioned, typically you send out a message every Friday that says, these are the new releases coming out this month or this week. Instead, you decided to say something else. What exactly did you say in that? I usually, it's just like, I don't even say anything in the email message. I just generate these PDF and Excel reports. And that's what I send out every Friday. And I was just like, well, you know, and it says, uh, you know, the title of the, the email message is like, oh, you know, UME schedules, Universal Music um, Enterprises schedules. I just uh, was like, I didn't do them today. And here's why. And here's what I think we should, Universal and Vivendi, which is the parent company, should stop donating to anti-abortion, anti-trans, and anti-queer politicians. That was the main thing. And I like, uh, I kind of ended it with, a, you know, in a threatening manner is like, or expect more unproductive days because nothing was getting done. And just, you know, I was saying how I was in mourning for the, uh, um, for what had just happened. I still got, you know, worked up kind of thinking about like, leading up to it like just there's this like anticipation of sending that email out and being like oh there's going to be blowback here in some form and i don't know what to do necessarily about it but you know just get into it and just to embrace it i guess <laughs> that is powerful because i think it's something that many people feel i mean let's take you know trayvon martin any unarmed black person getting shot yeah and murdered by the police there's so many people that go into work and they don't even have to be black right but they go into work and they don't want to do anything. Everyone knows it's going to be a very unproductive day. People take mental health days that day. Like everything you said in that message, I'm sure resonated with many people, right? Yeah. Like resonated with me. Like I didn't want to do anything. The past couple of years has been like really hard to just get through every day sometimes, you know? As soon as I sent out that email, I got like a ton of emails back being like, thank you for saying something. And I was just like, the fact that my other coworkers you know, felt that way. Like, you know, they're frustrated by that environment too. And they're, they were grateful for me saying something. And like, I'm just like, I'm glad that, um, that I could give voice to them too, in that sense. And it's like, we had, you know, Universal has a, um, you know, an office in, uh, in Nashville. So like Tennessee, is, 
abortion's illegal there now. So it's like I have a bunch of coworkers in that uh, in that state that don't have those rights anymore, and it's just heartbreaking to me. Even though there was a lot of like craziness in the aftermath of that, I think the supported stuff outweighed any of the negative stuff that I received. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about some of those some of those messages and, and how you felt. Because going into it, obviously there was a ton of anxiety, a ton of um, probably nerves. Like, what were some of those messages like from from people at work? Yeah, the first like they were they were pretty brief for the most part because like. You know, I, I think people didn't want to like write a big thing either. Like that's like more <laughs> energy to expend on that, like on that yeah. stuff. And uh, but it was mostly just along the lines of like, thank you for saying something. Thank you for, you know, being an ally. And I got, you know, just like uh, I got from a few people like oh, you're a king and like all that stuff. Like, <laughs> I was just like, OK, cool. Like, I'm glad that, you know, people are responding well to that. And that, that you know, uh, so like that was just really Great. And then when I shared it on social media, I, I started hearing from people who used to work for Universal and stuff like that. And just being like, yeah, like that was that was the environment. And like, you know, people are scared to say any say anything. And with good reason, you know, like I got I got messages from a few former coworkers too, like via text that were just like, you know, I, like I commend you for what you did. And I can't say that I'm surprised that they did what they did. You know, like I heard from like veterans of the, you know, the company being like, yeah, they're just, they were just going to do that anyways. But, you know, um, thank you for saying something and being able to like affect the employees, like morale to the extent where that maybe the company has to do something, you know, was the goal. I don't know if that's going to occur ever, you know, like I haven't, I haven't heard from any, like, uh, the people who managed me or anything like that. So, um, or, you know, about any kind of initiatives that they've wanted to put out in the world via a press release or anything. So yeah, I don't know what effective change that it had, you know, but hopefully it was positive at the company. And you do mention that they did something as far as potential response to what your email or post was. What happened? Like what did what did they do in response to to your to your email? Yeah. So initially the email was strictly internal. Um, that was the Friday. It was a Friday at noon. I sent that out and then I clocked out. My manager uh, called me and told me to take the rest of the day off, even though I'd been clocked out <laughs> and, uh, you know, didn't really say anything. They're just like, obviously you're upset. And I was like, yeah, no, yeah. Like, um, <laughs> you think, <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, okay, um, yeah, let's talk about it next week. Then I started my day like usual. I was working on some project wrapping a few things up, looking at print proofs and whatnot. Then, uh, I got, you know, a, the Zoom pop up and it's like, oh, OK, so this is what it's going to be. And I knew immediately I was like, OK, I, this is not like, you know, my manager is being like, oh, we're having a discussion. I was like, this is HR. I know this feeling already. And then they let me go. Uh, they told me they were that I was being terminated for uh, for poor judgment, disrupting the day of 275 people. Uh, and then uh, that's fine. I, I think like I, was, I said, my only regret to them, to the HR people was like that I didn't have a larger email list to go off of, you know, to send it throughout the entire company. Cause there's like 6,000 people or something that were for this company. Um, and I was just like, all right. And then immediately after that, I was like, okay, they're going to take away my computer. They're going to send a courier or something like that to come pick it up. I should follow up on this email thread. And, uh, you know, I did a follow up email being like, Hey, uh, I got fired for this email, so I just wanted to let you know where they stand on, you know, a queer brown person sticking up for abortion rights, <laughs> like in Pride Month. Specifically, the timing made like I wanted to draw draw a line to that and draw attention to that 
those aspects of it. I felt like that, that like it would just kind of be ignored. Like, oh, that person's gone now, you know? And they wouldn't say why. And I wanted to say why. I wanted to let my coworkers know why I wasn't going to be back. And so immediately after I, after I sent that, I get a call. They're like, we got the courier on the way right now. They're going to be there like in, you know, 30 minutes. So I was like, all right, cool. And I had sent my, I felt comfortable because I was like, I sent my email. I'm good. And so I just forwarded it to myself, the email to myself, and I shared it on LinkedIn. Letting I wanted to let other folks know in my network, you know, you know, stuff that they probably already knew if they were working in the music industry, but just like letting other folks know that like, you know, new music industry people who are like, there's going to school for music business or whatever, just like, there's not a lot of accountability, like, like as much as there's been like a lot of accountability happening in like film and television and stuff, like the music industry is notorious for not having as much, you know, like there's like amp ample predators out there all the time. <laughs> like, you know, there's a, like only after decades of evidence can something kind of like be like, okay, that's an issue. Like, with R. Kelly or Marilyn Manson or whatever, you know? There's a certain person that will take that, feel that, but won't do what you did. How did you get to the point from early on being told what you should do and given expectations? You said early on you even were very strategic on like certain parts of you that you would show at work and wouldn't. Like this isn't this isn't that person. How did you get to that point of giving less of a fuck? I think just because I realized that the that the industries I was working with in don't give a fuck about me. You know, after that first corporate position, I started being more focused on freelance and kind of hopping around and being more just trying to get my salary up, you know, trying to be able to uh, be able to afford my apartment and food and stuff, you know, even though companies always say, oh, we're a family, all that stuff. It's like, it's like, we know that's not true. I need to be thinking about my real family and thinking about my, myself and making sure that I'm safe and my, uh, you know, the friends uh, and community, my, you know, chosen family are safe. And so like, I will come to work, I will do what is needed of me. And then I will try and be very strict about going home when I need to. Maybe that's uh, limited me in some ways, in terms of like, how far I can go in terms of placement. Um, you know, people may see me not as ambitious. But you know, on the other hand, there's a lot of bosses that I have that are like, Oh, you just let the work speak for itself. But I'm like, Okay, cool. I just stopped giving a fuck. And especially I think part of that was also the pandemic, you know, when those, uh, I was working at uh, Guitar Center and I left before they started. They like it was like two weeks before they did the full shutdown of the thing. And I was just like, oh, they're just going to keep letting this go. I'm just going to make the decision for myself. I'm going to stay home, uh, you know, and I let my my managers know. And they were like, yeah, that's cool. Um, we understand with your situation with your spouse is uh, autoimmune disease that, you know, you uh, you you should do that. And uh, they were encouraging about it. He's like, but let, let, we want to let you know, there's only so much we can do to protect you. Uh, mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, good to know. And then like two weeks after the shutdown, we got laid off my whole department pretty much. <laughs> and so I was just like, okay, so, you know, there's that, uh, the protections in L LA city specifically um, allowed um, for, at least for rent. If you had lost your job due to the pandemic, you didn't, need to pay it. And I was like, okay, I don't have any money coming in. I don't know when I'm going to get unemployment. So I stopped paying rent for 10 months and like formed a tenants association. I got involved with my tenants unit in, in Los Angeles. And I was just like, I need to be, you know, uh, defensive for, and making sure that I stay housed and making sure that we stay fed and all that stuff was just like, 
all right, here's a big line in the sand. Like you're going to do whatever you need to do to, to make sure that you survive this. Uh, and, uh, and so I think that was, that was a big part of it was just like, okay, I need to be really, I think it just turned the dial up for me even more, you know, it was just like, okay, yeah, work doesn't care about you. It doesn't it, like, you can do whatever you're passionate about and you can, you can put whatever you're passionate about into the work itself. But at the end of the day, it's about the bottom line sometimes for them. I, I came to the realization during the pandemic as well around like, why do I only have to be ambitious about my job? Like I can be ambitious yeah. about so many other things outside of work as well. And there's often this, well, for me, like I was always title chasing out and during every performance review, like I wanted to exceed expectations. Right. But I realized that to exceed expectations, I need to put in so much more work than just the typical that I would often be losing out on things outside of work. So I came to this realization. I even told my manager, I was like, listen, I never want to exceed expectations here. I only want to meet them because if I meet them, that means I can exceed expectations on things outside of work that I'm actually passionate about. Yeah. Um, and I think, a, I think a lot of people came to that realization during the pandemic, you know, despite all of this, what empowers or inspires you to continue being your most authentic self moving forward? I just can't be any other way, you know, like I just need to be me. And um, I guess like, uh, you know, it's either like I'm going to find a company that is accepting of that and uh, what those needs are and um, in terms of like, you know, how I need to work and all that stuff, but also how I need to present myself or whatever. I'd probably be more successful if I could turn that off. But like, it's just like, why should I? <laughs> Mi gente, that wraps up this week's episode of the Quintuetas podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor, leave us a rating and a review. It just helps us in the algorithm to ensure that these stories get heard by as many people as possible. Scaling these stories and experiences is the only way that we're going to redefine professionalism. Thank you. We'll see you next week.